So as you can see, CATCH uh, stands for Changing Actions to Change Habits. And this is a specialty docket in Franklin County Municipal Court that was started by Judge Paul Herbert in about 2009. And um, I don't know if you're familiar with specialty dockets, but there are other specialty dockets. There's drug court, there's mental health court, there's veterans court. And the reason we have these is for people who offend in some way. Um, and we decide that, you know, really it's way too expensive. <laughs> basically, to keep them in jail. Why don't we give them treatment instead? And so Catch Court is a specialty docket that was created for, um, for those who end up with arrests like prostitution, solicitation, loitering to solicit, things like that, and are presumed to be uh, actually victims of sex trafficking. And so this specialty docket allows them to go through two year, a two-year treatment program. And they're provided with residential care, provided with counseling, both individual and group counseling. Of course, they're on probation. Um, they have to come to court every week, but that's kind of like a small party anyway, so it's not that bad. <laughs> um, it's a really amazing program. And what we always tell people is, you know, if you want to do this and if you're ready to do this, then miracles can happen here. But there is this element of having to sort of make that choice for themselves. And many women that we work with, unfortunately, really aren't ready yet. And so they end up dropping out or leaving the program for one reason or another. And it's heartbreaking every time it happens. And I'm kind of new there, so I'm not used to it yet. <laughs> it really hurts every time someone runs. Um, but you know what? My prayer is that that doesn't get easier. Because I want to feel it. I want to feel the pain of someone choosing a life that just is going to hurt them more and more. But that's Catch Court in a nutshell. And if you have more questions about that, I, I, I do love talking about it. It's amazing. And um, you're going to hear more about it, I think, a little bit later, too. So, Well, the day before Martin Luther King Day, uh, I thought it would be appropriate to start with uh, a quote from the doctor himself. Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. I love this quote. And it is the reason why I'm here, because this issue matters to me, to you, to someone you care about, and I can't be silent anymore. You may not be able to tell, but I'm totally an introvert. So if you saw me normally at this hour on a Sunday evening, I am absolutely in sweatpants, on my couch, like getting ready for the week. Thank God we don't have work tomorrow, at least some of us. Um, so this, I don't love to be in front of people and talk just for the sake of talking. I wouldn't do something like that. I do this because this issue matters. And I, I like that it's this weekend, Martin Luther King weekend, because to me, this whole topic, which has become, you know, sort of a popular topic lately, it's more, you know, we're more familiar with this issue, some of us, um, this is our opportunity, I think, in our generation to be today's abolitionists. We want to see this kind of slavery abolished. Amen? <laughs> All right. I think that you uh, probably have learned quite a bit about what human trafficking is, so I'm not going to linger here too long. I do want to just point out a couple of things. One, you know, traditionally, um, until recent years, as far as the most money-making um, criminal industries, you know, the order of things were drugs, weapons, and then people. Um, but now people have taken the place of weapons. So drugs are still number one in terms of criminal industry, but people, and specifically sex, is number two. 
Now, when you think about why, I'm going to say criminals, um, are more inclined to go into business with people, what do you, why do you think that might be? Easier to get? Yeah, I think that's true. Also, how many times can you use the same, you know, drug? Like, once. It's gone. How many times can you use a person? Over and over. So this makes sense, right? There's more room for profit, you know? Um, you don't have to acquire as much. Um, there's less risk involved. So human trafficking is estimated at a $32 billion industry. It's one of those numbers that might linger in your head for a few days. All right, so just a couple things in terms of the definition. And again, I know you've already learned a lot today. Um, you know, the key with trafficking, or when you think about trafficking, um, you know, I, I want you to try to stop thinking about the border issue. Remember, that's how kind of how I thought, and that's how a lot of us have thought too, is if I am transporting you from Ohio to Indiana, I have trafficked you. And that's not really the case. I could just, you know, we could, I could traffic someone right here in this room. Okay, so think about it a little differently. The key thing is force, fraud, or coercion. And if we can prove those things, well, sometimes we can't prove those things, but that is what makes it trafficking. So force is kind of obvious, right? When you're forcing someone to do something, that's force. Um, fraud is, um, think more of like deception, of promising somebody something. Um, I don't know if any of you have seen the movie 12 Years a Slave, which was Best Picture last year. Okay, so in that film, um, you may remember that this man was promised uh, money, um, and he, maybe a little bit of fame, you know, had this great opportunity to do this job for a couple weeks. Um, and so he went along, right? And this happens a lot with sex trafficking, too. Um, you know, that maybe a young girl is brought to, um, you know, America or another country and told she can start her modeling career or acting or, you know, some kind of um, glamorous job. And so there's that idea of promises being made. Sometimes it's the promise of marriage, you know, promise of relationship, of love. Um, and that those would be examples of fraud, of using fraud. Um, and then coercion. This is sort of the idea of using threats of harm. So this is the person who, um, you know, will say, um, well, you know, I know, I know where you're, where you, where you live. I know where your baby sister goes to school. You know, I, I have these pictures of you, of things that, that you did. And, you know, you can have them back once you, once you pay off your debt. Okay, so those are all ver um, examples of coercion when it comes to trafficking. All right, so let's talk um, big and move in close to home. So many of you have kind of spoken of the fact that this is happening here. This is happening in San Diego, California. This is happening in Cambodia. This is happening all over the world. And I think there's a lot of work to be done. And I remember that, you remember I, of course, told my college professor I wanted to work with prostitutes. <laughs> well, later in college, I went um, on a trip to Cambodia, actually, and I met a woman who was um, running a ministry there, and she was rehabilitating women who had been prostitutes. Most of them were dying of AIDS, actually. And um, she sat me down and I talked to her about the work that she did because I was so interested in working with um, this, this group of people. But she said to me, Hannah, if you don't feel a love 
specifically or a calling specifically to the people of Cambodia, don't, don't come here. <laughs> I mean, she just told me, she was, you know, keeping it real with me and said, don't come here. This is happening in your neighborhood. I remember the time I was kind of like, what are you talking about? Um, and so I kind of dismissed it. But um, I guess my point is, if you feel called to work with this population in another state or another country, that there is work to be done. There is plenty of work. For me right now, my calling is right here, Franklin County, working with the men and women who are suffering from trafficking here. But just to say, so, you know, when it comes to stats, by the way, for this issue, it's really hard because it's such an underground issue. We don't really know. So I have, you know, all these numbers up here. And I've basically, from an international scope, I've heard everywhere from 4 million to 27 million people being trafficked around the globe. I don't know. Somewhere in that range. There's just a small difference there. <laughs> a lot of people will say that. In the U.S., we said this earlier, but I think to note that the average age of entry into prostitution is 12 to 14. Of course, we wouldn't call a 12-year-old a prostitute, right? You've learned that so far. What are they called? You didn't know there was going to be a quiz. <laughs> yeah, a victim of sex trafficking. We'll just say that. I think this is important. Within 48 hours of running away, one out of three children is approached by someone involved in the commercial sex industry. Within 48 hours. That's why this is the highest vulnerability for our kids of being allured into this problem, is running away. There's a very high chance, one in three, that they're going to be approached by somebody. And frankly, if, you've, if you ran away within 48 hours, you're probably going to be hungry probably going to be in need of some cash, maybe shelter. You might be open to using some drugs because you're pretty miserable. So you're going to be pretty vulnerable, right? So it's not going to take much for a trafficker to convince that person to come along with them because they have all those things. Um, they have just what they need, right? Okay, human trafficking in Ohio. So we've talked about this before, but again, I'm going to ask you to um, another pop quiz. What makes Ohio so vulnerable? Why are we so high up on that, you know, we're number one in college football, but also we're up there on human trafficking. Why is that? Geographic location. What about that? Yeah, we're close to Canada. We're close to a lot of big cities. What else? Truck stops. We have more truck stops than any other state in the nation. Do you know that? Ohio. Our extensive highway system. I know at five o'clock on an afternoon, it doesn't feel like we have an extensive highway system, but it's true. Um, we have a high immigrant population here in Ohio. <laughs> That's part of it. We do have the agricultural industry. We have the eighth highest international student population due to all of our colleges and universities. And also poverty. We're pretty high up there, 42 out of 50 um, in terms of our poverty scales. So these are all things that make Ohio vulnerable to the issue of human trafficking. Is everyone feeling really good about being a Buckeye right now? I'm sorry. All right. Now, you, you hear different um, categories that are being used, and so we talk human trafficking, and then sometimes it seems like people enter, like, they'll say sex trafficking, and maybe it's not really clear. So this is just to sort of to give you that picture that human trafficking is sort of the broad scope, um, and we can break it down to labor trafficking and sex trafficking. And it does seem like we focus a little bit more on sex trafficking, and that's certainly an area where I'm focusing. But I'll just say that labor trafficking, you know, just like when we talk about... Um, 
we were talking earlier about, you know, we talk mostly about girls. What about the boys who are being trafficked? We need to talk about the boys. We also need to talk about labor trafficking. I guess just a couple things in terms of labor trafficking. Um, one is this idea of debt bondage. So that's the idea of, you know, I provide you with, um, you know, a place to stay or travel or these different kinds of things, and then I have you work off your debt. Okay, so that's one form that shows up. But forced labor of any kind, child labor. And just to say this, like, when you think about vulnerable fields, yeah, here are some industries, uh, and I'm not telling you you need to be skeptical every time you go to a hotel or get your nails done or something, but I will say that just any place where, um, you know, there's some under-the-table you know, work that can be done or under the table money that's being passed around. And these are just some, again, I'm not trying to make you all paranoid, but just to be aware, be alert. And as has already been said, if you suspect anything, to call call it in. All right, so some people have asked, you know, how, how does this happen? How does someone get, you know, sex trafficked in our in our own backyard? So if it's not happening, because, you know, there are the situations where someone gets kidnapped and you know, driven to another state or something like that. But here's just some, some ideas for recruitment. You'll see streets, friend's house. Friend's house is a big one. I don't know if you know this, but among teenagers, a friend is the number one recruiter for sex trafficking. Think about that. So are we talking to our kids about, I don't know, how to choose friends, <laughs> boundaries and friendships? Um, because what happens is once a girl is in it, uh, she's then encouraged and forced to recruit. That's part of her role. So she'll recruit her friends. And her friends will be eager because, you know what, that friend comes to school with the newest cell phone and, you know, nice clothing and her nails and hair are always done. And I don't know what your boyfriend's providing for you, but I'm in. Let's do this. You know, so it's not all that hard to recruit. Okay. Malls, we've talked about this. So think about... Think about the foster kid or the runaway youth who should be in school, but they go to the mall instead. And they're, they're hanging around. And then think about a trafficker hanging around a mall, and he sees this youth who he knows or she knows should be in school. Well, if they're not in school, then something's going on. And maybe they're carrying a backpack even, so maybe they look like a runaway youth, you know. And so they're going to be vulnerable. In fact, when I worked in San Diego, multiple multiple girls that I worked with had this very story, that they were at a mall, <laughs> that they had been, they felt like there was chaos at home, that no one wanted them at home, so they kind of left, they were hanging out, and then they were looking at something in a store, and this guy comes up, and he's like, man, that would look really good on you, you know, and he's talking to her, and he's building a friendship, and and she's really liking the attention, and she definitely really likes it when he purchases that article of clothing for her, Right? Before you know it, they're dating. <laughs> this is my boyfriend. He loves me. He buys me nice things. Um, and pretty soon, after they maybe have been having sex for a little while, he says, look, you know what, baby? I just, I need you to do this one thing for me. You know, like, we're, we're just, we're struggling. I really, you know, I, w- I want to be able to provide for my girl. I just need you to, uh, you know, meet up with this guy tonight. Can you just one time, you know, just, just for us, baby, you know. And the rest is history, as they say. Think about this one. Outside juvenile justice center while waiting to meet a probation officer or a caseworker. I mean, think about that, you know. 
Like literally a kid is like having probably one of the worst days of their lives and someone's just waiting to pounce on them. Can you think of that? And that picture to me is just devastating. Someone's own home, right? Because parents traffic their kids in the suburbs. It happens. Truck stops. Sporting events. Anywhere really where there's like transient males, again, just speaking in generalities here, um, trafficking goes up. You've probably all heard the stories surrounding like the Super Bowl um, here in Franklin County. As was mentioned um, in our discussion time, you know, the Arnold Classic is one of the big events that happens here. Um, but any, any major event like that or military town, you know, you're going to have um, traffickers are really going to target those areas and they're going to recruit to those areas. And so think about that when you're watching the Super Bowl in a couple weeks. Is it still two weeks away? I don't even know. Um, think about that and pray for those girls. I wanted to show you this because I think picture's powerful. This is an example of one woman's kind of journey into this life, her various mug shots, starting with the upper left hand, moving down to the bottom right. You can see the transition. And if you still think of prostitutes as just women who, you know, have bad drug habits and need to support their drug habit, and if you still think of them as criminals, and if you still think of them as people who are making poor life choices, did you know that on average, each year, a prostituted woman is raped 19 times? 19 times. It's more than once a month. Kidnapped 10 times. But most of the time, she's still considered the criminal in this transaction. Women in prostitution are routinely subjected to repeated beatings from their pimp or from various tricks or johns. And they've likely been coerced into a lot of different things like pornography, dancing to support her drug habit or her pimp's drug habit. <clears throat> and these women go to jail and then they get out and what do you think they do? <laughs> what options do they have? Yeah, there's one thing they know how to do. There's one thing the world's giving them. Here's another example. Look at those faces, look at her face. It's not often fun to think about this side of things, but I want to read a quote from a pimp in an interview that he did. His name is Harvey Washington. He was a pimp who he was beginning to serve a four-year, four-year sentence in Arizona in 2005 for pandering a 17-year-old and three adults, three adult prostitutes. And this is what he said, with the young girls, you promise them heaven and they'll follow you to hell. It all depends on her being so love drunk off of me that she will do anything for me. And that to me, that quote just sort of sums it up in some ways. I remember recently um, in my last organization I was working as a home-based counselor, which um, means that we, we drive to our clients' homes and we provide therapy in their homes or schools, foster homes, wherever they are. So a lot of times when I was working with teenagers, uh, we would do our sessions in, in the car, like driving around. Um, and that's because they wanted to go to the house and I couldn't always spend money taking them places. <laughs> so I spent my gas. It's terrible. It's true. And I, um, you know, my rule in my car with the teenagers was that they could control the radio uh, unless they were being mean. And then I would put it back on like NPR just to whip them into shape. Um, but anyway, I had this girl and, you know, she was listening to the, to the local hip hop station and um, this uh, Beyonce song. Um, 
now I'm going to forget what it's called. Drunken Love? Is that right? Does that sound right? Yeah. She was, and so this song was on. I don't, you probably don't know this. I don't know. Maybe you do. But anyway, so she's singing along to this song. And I'm just kind of having this moment with her. Because this is a girl who, her father has been in jail. Um, but, but really not in her life. And again, she's 16. And her mother has really struggled. Um, Children's Services has been involved most of her life. Um, this girl has been, at this point, living in foster care for um, about a year. She was molested when she was young. Okay, so you're hearing some of the vulnerabilities. And she's singing this song about being drunk in love. <laughs> and I'm remembering this quote from a pimp about being love drunk. And I am just about to lose it because I just, I, I love this girl. And I looked at her face and I thought, this could be her, you know? She could be the next trafficking victim. Now, thankfully, she's pretty feisty. And when boys wanted to get with her, she was, she was tough. She didn't make it easy on them. And I was really proud of her for that. It was like her, her hope, you know. But I guess just to say that when you think about these kids, and even these young adults or, or older adults, think about this idea of love drunk or drunken love. They're thirsty. <laughs> Aren't we all a little thirsty for love. That's what they are. And a pimp is real good at what he does. A trafficker is really good at what he does. He can see that a mile away. She can see that a mile away. And all she's got to do, all he's got to do is offer a little bit of love, right? It's so easy to settle. Here's another uh, quote from a pimp. You'll start to dress her, think for her, own her. If you and your victim are sexually active, slow it down. After sex, take her shopping for one item. Hair and or nails is fine. She'll develop a feeling of accomplishment. The shopping after a month will be replaced with cash. The lovemaking turns into raw sex. She'll start to crave the intimacy and be willing to get back into your good graces. After you've broken her spirit, she has no sense of self-value. Now, pimp, put a price tag on the item you have manufactured. It's quoted from the pimp game which you literally can order on Amazon. So what is this doing? What is this doing to victims? What happens? A lot happens. There are physical harms of human trafficking listed here, things like malnutrition, poor hygiene, bed bug bites, various bodily injuries. And this right here is why our medical staff should be required, right? <laughs> required to know about human trafficking. And many of them have learned. I've met some amazing nurses and doctors who are, are really trying to identify this issue. We need more. Everybody needs to know. Some more physical problems. Reproductive health problems, of course, STDs, pregnancies and abortions, fertility issues, malnutrition, we say that again, um, for kids, stunted growth, um, alcohol and drug use, and then chronic back, visual, respiratory problems, particularly for people with labor trafficking in agriculture. So what about the mind? What's the mind do when this happens? This idea of dissociation, dissociative disorders, or what was formerly known as multiple personality disorder, remember when it was called that, right? I want to be honest with you. I think God for multiple personality disorder. That sounds really weird. It's one of the hardest things to treat. I don't really... 
look forward to that when I'm working with clients. But I will say this. I mean, even as we watched in the movie, for those of you who are here for the screening, there is almost this, you want her to be able to escape in her mind, don't you? You want her to dissociate. You want her to go to a happy place in her mind while someone violates her in that way. You want that for her. So of course, though, you do that enough times, and there is going to be a split of sorts. Someone's going to learn to just dissociate from life. Someone might develop a whole personality in that place. That happens. That is real. And I'm grateful because if that helped you survive the kind of heinous crime that took place to you, I'm grateful. And even if it takes us years to get you back to one whole person, I'm grateful. Shame and grief. You saw in one of the other um, films we watched, right, that this girl who was being reunited with her family said, they wouldn't want me. You know, 10 years later, she's saying, they wouldn't want me anymore because of all the things I've done, all the things I've done, right? And this is what happens with, with child sexual abuse, that a perpetrator of sexual, sexual abuse, being so good at what he or she does, convinces the victim that it was their fault. It's the same true with traffickers. Okay, so they're going to do a really good job of convincing that person it's your fault. So there's shame. There's depression, anxiety, self-destructive behaviors, suicide. Trauma bonding with a perpetrator. You've all heard of like the Stockholm Syndrome, maybe? This is another survival mechanism. So again, you think about the horrifying situation that it must be to be with a trafficker. And maybe one of the things that you do in order to survive that situation is you create kind of a world where he does love you and this is an okay thing. And maybe I do want this. And maybe you do have my back. You know, so you kind of, um, kind of bond. And also, I mean, I hate to put it this way, a good trafficker is going to do just enough, just give you enough breadcrumbs to keep you coming back. It's that, again, love drunk. Post-traumatic stress disorder. I thought this was interesting. In a study of prostituted women from nine countries, the level of PTSD was 68%. I guess it's actually a little higher than that, um, which is the same range as that of treatment-seeking combat veterans. So we, we often think of PTSD with combat veterans, but, um, you know, and when I've gone in and done these assessments um, of women who come in off the streets, um, some, of, some of the post-traumatic stress symptoms haven't shown up yet, like maybe they're not quite having nightmares yet, but I have a feeling it's coming. So pretty much on every assessment I do, I always put, you know, rule out post-traumatic stress disorder. Because even if it's not showing up now, it's probably going to show up. I shouldn't say. It doesn't always, but most of the time. All right. I'm going to go all Bible on you now. You ready? God's people know a thing or two about slavery, right? I thought this passage was powerful for a time like today. You have the version up there. I'm going to read... Hannah's modern-day version of this, okay? But you have it right there. It says, God said to Moses, I've taken a good long look at the affliction of my people. I've heard their cries for deliverance from their slave masters. I know all about their pain. And now I have come down to help them, pry them loose from the grip of hell, get them out of that country, and bring them to a good land with wide-open spaces 
a land lush with milk and honey. The woman's cry for help has come to me, and I've seen for myself how cruelly they're being treated by the pimps. It's time for you to go back. I'm sending you to Parsons Avenue, Sullivan Avenue, Livingston Avenue, to bring my people out of hell. It's from Exodus-ish. What's God saying here? He's saying, I've heard. He's saying, I'm doing something about it, and I choose you. And you all know this story. Moses had a few, what should we say, insecurities? Excuses? I don't know how you want to call them. But he, there was some concern. This wasn't an easy go, and then he went, and it was, right? This was kind of a long journey, which is kind of like the work of helping a victim of sex trafficking get out of her situation. It's not so simple as just driving down Sullivan Avenue and seeing a woman walking the streets and pulling over and saying, like, hey, I want to rescue you, so let's do this thing, right? It's not quite that simple. I wish it was. And maybe on the right night, that, it might be that simple. <laughs> maybe Barb can tell us a little bit about that. And you also know that once God's people left Egypt, it was just all, like, rainbows and unicorns, right? <laughs> oh, wait! That's not true. They had some problems. And what did they say? Yeah, let's go back, right? That never happens with victims of sex trafficking. No, they say it too. And they all, the Israelites said, you should have let us die in Egypt. That would have been better than whatever this is happening here in the wilderness. You should have let us die. I want to go back. Because at least there we got like this meal and this thing, right? I think this is a parallel of what it's like to work with this group of people. Because here's the deal. God doesn't, didn't just want to change their circumstances. He wanted to change their hearts. And I would say that's true for this population. We can't just change the circumstances. We can't just remove them from slavery. We have to do the hard, long work of removing the slavery from their hearts and their minds. Because when they get off the streets, their minds and their hearts, they're still slaves. They wouldn't say that. They wouldn't even call themselves a victim of trafficking, by the way. No, no. So don't ever ask someone, are you a victim of human trafficking? (laughs) That's not a thing. The long work of freeing people from the slavery in their hearts. So let me say this. You can't do it alone. This is not a work for one person. I know Moses was like one person. He had a crew. And also, if you get to chapter 18 of Exodus, he got kind of scolded by his father-in-law for working on his own. He got burnout, like many of us will get burnout from doing this work, because it's hard work. You know, in the literature, the, uh, you know, the academic literature for treating people, victims of human trafficking, says you can't do it alone. It talks about the burnout rate. It talks about how hard the work it is. It says, you know, it might just be a short-lived part of your career. And it also says you have to be willing to collaborate with other people. And I think part of the reason it says that is because we need to do this thing together. And so if you're here today and you think, well, I'm not a counselor or a social worker or, you know, whatever, or like Moses, I don't, I can't speak. I don't, you know, I'm not comfortable speaking. Okay. You have a role, I promise. There is a role for you in this fight. And we can't do it alone. So a lot of you have asked, and a lot of people ask me, what can I do? So let me leave you with a few things you can do. I don't know if you can see that very well. This is the part where you get to get out your phones. Yes! This is one of my favorite parts. 
And you're going to put in this phone number, 614-285-4357. That is the Central Ohio Human Trafficking Hotline. And that is a number that you can call if you suspect anything or if you happen to be in a conversation uh, with a victim who happens to tell you they're in a situation they want to get out of. This is a number you can call. Okay, law enforcement tips, whatever you got, bring it to this number, okay? If you do choose to question somebody for whatever reason, maybe you're in a situation, maybe you're at a mall, you know, and something looks shady, and you, you get a chance to actually talk to somebody. First of all, if they look like they're with someone who is trafficking them, you're probably not going to want to have that conversation unless you can isolate them in some way, which is also kind of weird, so... But if you, if you happen to, here are some questions that, you, that may be appropriate to ask. Things like, can you leave your job or situation if you want? So this might be if you're suspecting, like, the staff at a restaurant. You know, they seem, something fishy's going on here. Are these people being labor trafficked? Maybe you can ask one of the servers this question. Can you leave your job or situation if you want? See what they say. By the way, they've probably been prepped for these questions <laughs> by their trafficker. So it's not so cut and dry, but here are questions anyway. Can you come and go as you please? Um, have you been threatened if you try to leave? Um, where do you sleep and eat? Okay. So those are some questions. Does everybody get the number in your phones? I'm going to go around and check. No, I'm not. All right. Something else you can do. Keep getting educated. January, as you probably know at this point, is Human Trafficking Awareness Month. So there are events all the time. Um, there's been a lot in January, but they're all the time. And Central Ohio is doing awesome work. So um, just Google it. There are events you can go to. I just wanted to tell you about one coming up that I'm really excited about and I'm going to be at. <laughs> it's called Concept Freedom. Has, anybody, has anyone heard of this? This is happening at Ohio State the last weekend in January. Um, they're having a three-day human trafficking summit. I think it's Thursday, Friday, Saturday night. Um, and there's just going to be, it's a little bit more artsy. So I think Thursday night they're doing like a choral concert and a woman named Rachel Lloyd from GEMS, um, which is Girls Education Mentoring Services, one of the first residential facilities for victims of human trafficking ever. Um, she's going to be speaking. I'm really excited about that. Um, Friday night they're doing, uh, they're viewing a film called Very Young Girls, which is one of the films that um, was highlighted in the other room. And um, Saturday night they're doing what's called the Unchained Fashion Show, which is a really, really cool event where um, the fashion show uh, is narrated and depicts the journey of a young girl from innocence to being trafficked and then ultimately being rescued and restored which is pretty cool. And Judge Herbert is going to be speaking um, at that event as well. So this is just one example. You guys, there are events all the time. And this event has been fabulous. So thank you, uh, if I, in case I haven't said that. You've heard a couple times about this um, sting that went down just this week in Powell, Ohio. And because of that, 18 women were rescued, which is awesome. I mean, really awesome. So because of that, we've got 18 rescued women out there with a lot of needs. So if you're the kind of person maybe who feels like, well, I can't speak and I can't counsel and maybe I can't do any kind of direct service, but you've got some extra cash or some extra things, this is just a pressing need this week. 
if you can contribute in some way. The Salvation Army, specifically Jennifer Ward, and her phone number is listed there, uh, is collecting these items for these women. Twin-sized blankets and comforters, bath towels, laundry bags, bottled water, snacks. That's not that hard, okay? So get some things together, call this number, arrange a drop-off at the Salvation Army on East Main Street, and you will have done some excellent abolitionist work, okay? Here's another thing. There is, in Central Ohio, the Central Ohio Rescue and Restore Coalition, which is an awesome group of people that meets uh, on a monthly basis at the Salvation Army. It's the first Wednesday of every month from 1 to 3 p.m. Anyone can go. It's basically the place where, where various, excuse me, organizations, uh, congregations, individuals come together and talk about this issue um, and talk about what's going on in the city, what we can do. Um, if, you're, if you're a person who thinks, uh, so there's, there's subcommittees. There's like a social services committee. There's a demand reduction committee. So if maybe you're a man or even a woman who really cares about this issue on the other side of ending demand, so educating more like more men, um, but people about demand reduction. There's like a legislation committee. So if you're interested in actually being a part of the work of changing the laws um, in our state and things like that and educating our, our legislators, um, you can be a part of a committee like that. So there are a lot of opportunities within this coalition. Um, and I personally have loved being, um, being a part of it. So you're welcome to, to do that. And they also, again, more training that's provided through the Salvation Army and the coalition. Um, these are some of the, the different trainings that you can go to and then be involved in these specific ways. So they have the Speakers Bureau. Um, and if you attend that training, you then they'll send you this, this PowerPoint that they provide and you can take it and educate you know, people at your workplace, um, wherever else, meetings, et cetera, and just get the word out. And you don't have to create a presentation. It's just given to you. Isn't that awesome? I love it. Um, some volunteer opportunities. They do a street outreach. I believe it's still on Monday evenings, although they talked about switching it up. Um, but this is um, just a training for people who actually want to go out in the streets late at night and deliver snacks and bottled water and um, cards uh, to the women on the street, which is cool. The Well, which is a really cool service at the Salvation Army on Tuesday afternoons. And it's a really neat because it's just sort of a open forum for women to come and they're served a meal. Um, there's like usually I think a nurse practitioner on site to be available for like medical stuff. There's social workers and people available for whatever. It's really neat. So they need people to, to be there, but more specifically they need people to prepare meals for that. So if you're a person who just loves cooking, this might be great for you. See, you, we do. We need everybody. Um, so here are just, you know, some other things you can do. Showing up to the meetings, shopping, fair trade. It's just good in general. Praying. If you are giving like a law enforcement tip, then the person who you're speaking to will take down all your information, and that information will be immediately emailed to the uh, head of the um, Central Ohio Human Trafficking Task Force, Agent Dennis, and they'll follow up with it. Um, because there's a chance that it's um, they're already working on a case surrounding the tip that you're sharing, um, or there's a chance that it's you know new information. But either way, you know they'll take care of 
it from that point. If you're calling because you're standing with someone who is a victim of labor trafficking or sex trafficking, then that person is then going to call the point of contact who is a trained social worker or therapist who will then drive out to that victim and talk with them. And if they're ready to leave that situation, help them get to a safe place uh, and go from there. Well, both are problems. So I guess um, the, the important distinction is that with a child or someone under the age of 18, um, there's not a question of whether or not they're a victim of trafficking. Because by law, at this point in the state of Ohio, if you're being prostituted under the age of 18, you are a victim of sex trafficking. With adults, it's trickier because you have to prove in the court of law forced fraud or coercion. Because there are people who make the decision to engage in prostitution on their own. Now, I would argue that they're victimized anyway, in some way, shape, or form, um, and should be treated as such. But the reality from a legal standpoint is that you have to be able to prove that one of those things, to be able to prosecute the trafficker or the pimp. Yes, um, I will tell you that Franklin County Children's Services has been trained. I don't know what training they've received, but I know that they've been trained on this issue. Um, they have like a red flag system to assess for if trafficking is happening. Um, if, if a child, teenager, whatever, is being trafficked in some way, um, I'm certain that they're going to be removed from wherever they are and put in probably a residential facility. Not necessarily because their parents were pimping them out or whatever, but because they need residential care at this point. They need treatment. Does that make sense? And so, um, but you're right. I mean, like if, so Rena and I worked on the hotline. And if we got a call about a 16-year-old, it changes the game for us because we're mandated reporters. And so we don't just, you know, go out and meet the 16-year-old and say, like, hey, are you ready to get out of your situation? We can't do that. We have to call children's services. We don't have a choice. They have to get involved. Well, I think, is it Sweden, I think, is a good example because it's happening there and they're studying it, what's happening, and, and the rates of this has dropped significantly. And um, so, yes, the short answer, I, personally, and again, feel free to take issue with me because I could be wrong. Um, is that if we um, charge the Johns with the purchasing of sex and not the women for the selling of sex, I think we would make a little bit of progress. Yeah. All right. Well, let me let me say this because um, I really want to leave enough time to introduce someone really special. Um, so, uh, you know, in recently taking over at Catch Court, I've had just the opportunity of meeting um, several graduates of Catch Court. And um, Barb Freeman is one of them, and she just, from the second I met her, uh, just was overwhelmed by how dynamic she is and how passionate she is and what a big heart she has for, um, for women in this situation. And so um, I just wanted to give her the last 20 minutes or so to share a little bit of her story and also to leave you with a taste of hope and a picture of redemption, because probably some of you at this point are hungry to know can someone get out of this? Can someone survive this situation? And can they thrive? And um, Barb is an example that, yes, they can. So I'm going to turn it over to her. Hello. I'm going to make it exciting, okay? I'm not going to have you crying and all of that good stuff. I'm pretty sure that um, 
you probably heard or see see on the news all the time all the horrible things that can happen behind it but you're looking at a live survivor of trafficking of 23 years and um i'm 43 years old i have four grown daughters um and i just want to give you a little bit about what it kind of started like for me um not really getting into the depths of what happened but just the outcome of god and um how he's came into my life and which he's always been a part of my life um but just how i was rescued so at the age of 16 um i met a gentleman he was way older than me uh parents have been educated about trafficking or about safe dating, you know, different things like that. My mother was being abused. So I was a child that was looking for love. Um, I was always sitting on the front porch, you know, just wanted to be in, always put myself in a fairy tale, always in school daydreaming, just wanted to have a different life, you know. Well, I wanted different parents or, you know, this, this man was a stepfather um, and he was abusing my mother and then he had started abusing us. So when this when this older gentleman came along and I didn't know that he was as old as he was, and my mother didn't either, um, he showered me and he that's coercing and he started to give me money and jewelry and buy me clothes and fur coats. And the only thing my mom said was, oh, he is nice, you know, but I'm 16 years old and he's nice, you know. So one one of the things that I educate parents is pay attention to your children. You know, check those purses and things like that. Because if they start coming in there with stuff that you ain't buy, it's a problem. You understand what I'm saying? If they start having this money that you didn't give, it's a problem. If the uncles and aunts and stuff want to give money, they need to inform you. You know, that's one of the things to look for. When they get in those cars, different cars, you know, you got teenage daughters, they be like, oh, I'm going on a date, and you finally approve it. Get that license plate number. You know what I'm saying? Ask that gentleman, can I see your driver's license? You know, these are just some valuable tips, and we would want to think that we wouldn't have to do that with our children, but guess what? We do. My children gone grown, and I'm still getting license plate numbers, you know? Going to the gentleman, making sure I see his face real good. So anyway, what happened is um this gentleman got me uh started on drugs crack cocaine first he got me on the marijuana and once i was on the marijuana uh he laced it with crack cocaine i never knew what it was like i said my parents wasn't educated this wasn't anything that they was educating us in school you know they was more on health science you know fiction nonfiction, you know but really they should have been on you know, things like drugs and, you know, trafficking and safe dating and, and different things like that, seeing that's the times our hormones start growing. You know, we started to, you know, be arousing different things like that. So once I was a, once I, when I, once I started to be on this drug, I didn't know that this drug was something that was going to eliminate me and take me from self and take my whole complete life of growing up away from me. As of now, I still have this little girl on the inside that wonder, what happened and why did I grow up so fast? And I missed all of that, you know? Um, anyway, once this guy got me uh, strung out on drugs, uh, my parents found out about it because I told them. I seen it on the news and I went to my mom and I said, I need to talk to you. I have a problem. And um, I said, I'm addicted to something I seen on the TV. 
So the first thing she do is get on the phone with her girlfriends and they all like, oh my God, girl, did you hear about them? They'll steal everything in your house and they'll do this and they'll take your money and your bank cards and all of that. I hadn't got to none of that. You know, this man was a drug, big time drug dealer and everything. And what he done is he took me and he used me for his own good. First, it was for himself, and he would, um, my parent, just to let you know, my parents kicked me out. So I was 16 years old, and I was homeless. And what my mother told me is she was going to send me to a shelter. And I'm like, what is a shelter? And she said, it's where they said homeless people. And I looked at my mother with tears in my eyes, and I said, do you mean to tell me that I'm homeless? So I got out of the car. It was a blizzard. I got out of the car, and I just proceeded just to walk, just to walk down the street, you know. So I called this guy. And he came and got me, and um, like I said, he used me for his own good. This man controlled me, um, you know, every, every move was with him, you know, and it was like, you know, after sex and stuff, like he would put the drugs on the TV. He never gave me money, but he would go and buy my clothes, and he would, like, pick out the clothes he wanted me to wear, and I had to wear the clothes in the house. Um, and then he would start calling his friends, and, like, he would always lock me downstairs in the basement, um, he would get drunk and he would lock me down there. And when he was ready to be with me, then he would have me to come up. And then when I would go down, then he would like call people over that would buy drugs from him and send them downstairs with me. And that was a way for them to keep spending their money with him. And they would use the drugs with me. Well, as I started, as I started to happen or whatever, um, one day I got away from him because he had went to jail and I ended up out in this apartment complex, um, on Agler Road called Capitol Park. And when I ended up out there, um, I got it. I went into this apartment, and this guy um, kind of, well, he influenced me with, with more drugs and things. And then I started to feel like really scared. And he gave me this intimidation of, I can't go anywhere. Like I owed him something. And so I'm sitting there. And so a couple hours go past, and he comes to me and he says, um, I'm going to have this lady to come down. She's going to do your hair. She's going to get you dressed, and you're going to go with her. Everything's going to be okay. And when you come back, we're going to we're gonna have a good time, and, you know, we're going to party, and we're going to, you know, get high or whatever. And this lady took me out on the street with her. Um, let me back up a little bit. First, he started having guys that come to the apartment. So when he seen that, that that was slowing down, then that's when he sent the lady down. And this was a couple days later. So anyway, she took me out on the street with her, and we sat at a bus stop on Agler Road. Everybody know where Agler Road is? We sat at a bus stop on Agler Road, like right by a, a, a dry, it used to be a dry cleaners right there, and a little store. And um, I was sitting there at a bus stop, and this, this, this man pulls up, and he said, oh, I see you got your friend with you today. And, and she was like, yeah, can she come? And I got in a car, and like that was the actual first time that I've been on the outside. And I found out that it was prostitution, that I had actually went out to the streets and prostituted, but with on the inside of him sending men to me and him telling me, you got to make this money, I was being trafficked. So I was getting both worlds. So by me being caught up and by me being young and not having anywhere to go and my parents had, had kicked me out, um, I was passed from house to house from men to men. And it was the most horriblest thing. And that's the way that I grew up, you know. And people would, would not think that this is something that would happen in Columbus, Ohio. Like, people people still today be like, is that happening here? I'll be like, are you kidding me? Like, do you have a minute? Like, sit down, let me tell you my story. I go in so many different businesses, sometimes just to pay a bill. 
and I just share my story, they'd be like, I know you from somewhere. I'd be like, TV, you know, or a newspaper or something. I'm always trying to educate and just spread the word that this is happening. Um, a lot of people like think that it's something embarrassing, but I'm an overcomer. So it's not embarrassing to me. I'm willing to tell my story to help the next lady or, or because it also happened to the young men to share my story, to help them to use their voices, um, for people to heal because that's the only way that you can heal from this. So anyway, um, like I said, I grew up that way. I mean, it was horrible. I went through rapes. I went through 23 rapes. Um, I went through being kidnapped, taken on uh, Broughton James. We know where Broughton James is. Um, I'm giving these names because these are places that we drive down. City streets we drive down. I, I've been I've been raped everywhere, you know, uh, Cleveland Avenue, Mount Vernon. Uh, I've been out here, um, been closer to, to the North Lamar that used to be up here, the hotels, all of the hotels. Um, I was sold all over central Ohio uh, from a young girl all the way up to almost six years ago. Um, and what it became was repetitious. So it became a part of me, you know. And, you know, sometimes, and, and, and I know that God loves me, but, you know, I used to feel like everybody has a part to play in life. Is this the part that I was supposed to play? So I was so, I was never angry with God, but I just never understood like why I had to go through it. But today I can actually say that I'm glad that I went through it because I wouldn't be the woman that I am today. So I know that I have a purpose because I lived through it. You know, a lot of women don't make it out. You know, you remember the year they found the eight women in the buckets and in the man's house in the freezer, bodies cut up and they all was women that was out prostituting and being trafficked. That could have been me, you know. Um, so anyway, as I got older, they put me out on the street more because I was really no longer needed because I'm older. And the men want younger girls. I've had men trying to recruit women to go out and recruit young girls, 9 to 13 years old. They're paying these women that are out on the street now. If you can, hey, go find me a younger girl or go find me a young boy. I had them to pull up to me and I said, no way. And at that time, I'm thinking of my own children, you know. Um, during, during this, um, I was, they found my body in the bushes before, um, almost pronounced dead. I was kicked in my head. I was in a coma for three months. Um, the sad thing to say is my pimp or, my perpetrator was always right there. And a lot of times people say, well, why don't these girls say anything? They're scared. They threaten to kill our family, our mother, our children. You know, they never let me get a job. So I don't think, I really even don't know how to have a job. I might can hold a part-time job. <laughs> so I'm good at what I do right now and I speaking. But, you know, um, I didn't even know who I was. I was who they said I was, you know? I've been working for on myself for years trying to find out who God, who am I? What is my purpose, you know? And I, and I think about Mary and Magdalena all the time, you know? And, um, and you know what helps me to heal? Because I say, that was not me. That was not me. Because I know in my right mind, I would never do anything like that. I think about that little girl sitting on that porch. That's not the love that she wanted. You know, that's not the love that she needed. And I felt like when I got in that life, I was blinded by the enemy, you know. So 
Um, you heard all of that, so let me kind of get to some of the some of the good stuff. But let me tell you what happened on the day of my deliverance. April the seventh of two thousand and nine was the last day that I was sold. And I'm gonna say this: I was outside, and I was in paper thin pajamas and house shoes. And the pimp had put me on Cleveland and Twenty Fifth, mad at me because my money was short. And as he put me out, somebody else was looking for me. And so when they told me that this guy was looking for me, I said, oh, no, that, that, that guy, either he going to kill me or I'm going to kill him. Because, see, I don't got feisty now. I've been out there too long. So just think, if I'm 43 now, almost six years ago, I was 38, about 38 years old, all the way from 16 to 38. You don't think that I got feisty? Huh? I got some feistiness in me. You hear me? <laughs> so you, um, I just... When they said it, I was like, oh, no. But guess what? I was freezing. I was hungry. I walked the alleys for years. I walked in darkness. But one thing is, is I never took my eyes off of God. And I always would pray to him. And I knew that he heard me. And I knew that one day that I would be rescued. But I didn't know if it was going to be dead or alive. I didn't know if I was going to die to it or if I was going to walk, get, you know what I'm saying, get up and walk away from it. I didn't know. But I just knew one day that it would be over. So, um, so this guy finds me and he, he says, I'm going to give you this key. He said, and with this key, you can turn your dates here. You can eat here. You, you can sleep here. You can, you know, buy your drugs from me. Just spend your money with me. So I'm thinking I'm not ready for another pimp. You know, this is not, you know, this is not what I want. So anyway, I took the key and I said, I'm just going to go stay tonight, get warm, you know, make, make, just make a little bit of money for him. That way he can just go away and I can just have the apartment and I can go to sleep. Well, guess what? I did that. I went to sleep. I, I was laid on that couch and I had the most comfortable, peaceful feeling that came over me. And I guess all through the night I was eat, eating Captain Crunchberry cereal because I woke up and Captain Crunchberries was everywhere. I could not believe it. I was like, who been in here? <laughs> but I tasted like cereal. So... Um, I got up and it was drugs on the drugs I had dropped on the floor. I used them and I went upstairs and I see him and his brother standing outside. And I said, oh, God, he's going to come in here in a little bit enraged, talking about get yourself together, go out, make some money. And so I'm in the mirror and I'm trying to put on lipstick and fix my hair and I can't. And my hand is shaking and I can't control it. It was the most craziest experience ever. I could not control it or anything. And so I was just like, forget it. So I went to the door and I got ready to go out of the house and I just, I felt this feeling like come over me. I'm getting chills now, but this feeling came over me. And when I went to touch the doorknob and I opened the door, him and his brother was standing across the street. And when I went to throw the, you know how you do people like peach, you see the younger kids. Well, I went to do one of those and I looked up and it was this ray of light. And when I looked at that ray of light, just something just told me that that was God, you know, and I proceeded to walk down the street to Cleveland and 25th. And when I got up there, there was a police officer sitting in the car. I didn't know that he was a police officer, but I tried to proposition him. And, you know, I got, when I got in the car and everything with him and I told him to turn one way, he turned the other. And, you know, the thing went, whoop, whoop, you know, and I was like, oh, Jesus, I'm going to jail. And um, so I did. I ended up going to jail that day. And that was the best day of my life. That was the best day of my life. I went in there. 
I got in that cell and I prayed and I said, God, I can't go back out there. I'm going to die. I felt the enemies chasing me. I said, they're going to kill me. And I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. Ever since April the 8th of 2009, I haven't smoked a cigarette. I haven't took a drug. I haven't turned a trick. I haven't been trafficked or anything. When I got out, when I was in there, I didn't call that pimp, that perpetrator or nothing. I went to court and they was coming with this this program, uh, the catch court. It didn't even have a name yet. I was the first client. They said, she's a good candidate. And I was like, I'm all in. I'm all in. I've been trapped in this for years. I don't know how to get out. It had never been a court docket like the catch court program. Never. For women in prostitution, women being trafficked, or anything. So I did that program, and I also got in a program called Amethyst. And I stayed in that program for two and a half years. You know, and for, for someone to do that, that lets you know that they're ready to live a different life. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to live a different life. And I started to feel good about myself. And all kind of different organizations came in and showed us women love. And the courtroom just started to fill up. Because first, it was just three of us. And it just started to fill up and fill up and fill up. And the more that I stayed and I found out who I who I was, and I got connected, my, my relationship right with, with God. And I said, you know what? Now I know my value. And I know my worth. They can't have me. You know, he paid the price for me. They can't have me, you know? So um, so that was the end of my nightmare, you know? But God placed something on my heart. When I graduated from both programs, I got my own house. I bought my own car, um, went to school, and I found out about human trafficking. And God placed on my heart to help women. And I said, okay, so what you want me to do? He was like, well, go out there and get him. So I guess I'm his soldier. So I put my breastplate on and everything, my salvation armor, and I go out there and I get those women. And within the three years that I've been doing it, I had 18 women and 11 of them are saved. 11, 11 of them are sober. Some of them are in college. Some of them are in their own apartments. Some are in Amethyst. Some are in the women's program. Some are in the Mary Haven program. But I went out there and I got them. And I wasn't scared. I wasn't scared when I was out there using and being trafficked and pimped. You know, everybody can't do that. Everybody got a different assignment. <laughs> but that's what I do. And I love doing it. And sometimes if they're not ready, I'll just give them my card. And I say, you know what? When you ready, you call me. But don't you call me if you ain't ready unless you in a desperate situation where you just got raped or something. Other than that, don't waste my time. So they know. When that phone rang three, four o'clock in the morning, I get up and go get them girls. And I just want to say what this, what, what the gentleman said is that, you know, sometimes when they go, have to go through the, through the doctors and stuff like that, it's this procedure. And by the time the procedure is clear, it already happened. That's one of the things that I try to prevent. When I get the women, I got straight contact numbers, straight federal, chief of police, everything. So when Barbara Freeman call, they say, where you at? Bring them on to us because I'm not letting them back out there. And if I have to, they'll be at my house until I get in touch with either the Salvation Army or the hotline where they can get them somewhere. Sometimes I'll get them um, in the engagement center, which is a detox center, so they can detox and get the help that they need. Or I'll get them into a homeless shelter, you know. So that's, that's 
what I love. I, that's what I love to do is, is to save these women. And it's a beautiful thing because I know that he didn't save me for me. He saved me so I can save the next one. So it all starts with each individual, you know, and we all have a purpose um, and we all have a cause in this. Because, you know, I ask my mom, sometimes my mom goes to my uh, speaking engagement with me because I speak all over the country. Um, I speak with the, the mayor, the governor. I speak with a lot of people, you know. I never thought me, right? But um, I asked my mom, I said, Mom, did you ever know that I was going to be a prostitute? Or did you know I was going to be trafficked or kidnapped? You know, Mom, did you think that I was going to ever be on drugs or anything? You know what my mom said? Had no idea. So we don't know. We don't know. You know, we don't know who in our family or whoever is going because money can't prevent it. Where you live, the neighborhoods can't prevent it or none of that. Sometimes it's the neighbor next door. That's the most horriblest, but it's the truth. If you ever seen that movie, The Girl Next Door, you know? So to be aware is to be alive. And I just want to thank you so much just for being here today and just for getting the education that you have on human trafficking because it's happening right here. Thank you. Have a blessed night.